0: This is Eric, and welcome to the first episode of Mythical Ministry. And in this episode, I'm, I'm going to explain to an extent what I mean by Mythical Ministry and what the purpose of this podcast is. And first, I want to clarify as well that I have a system so that when you see an episode that has an asterisk at the beginning of it, that means that it's going to be, uh, of course, related to the theme and the topic that I'll lay out, but it's going to be more theoretical, a lot of ideas. Uh, I could be talking about, you know, surveillance capitalism or transhumanism or UFOs or all kind of stuff that could obviously relate to the Bible um, and to the topic. But if there's not an asterisk at the beginning, then it's going to be more of a scripture-focused Uh, episode, meaning I will focus more on the Bible text and veer away from, um, you know, from just lots of theory. So that way, depending on what you're interested in, you can listen. Hopefully you'll listen to both because they both connect, Um, but I am going to try to keep them separate to an extent just for practical purposes. I'm going to read this from my podcast description. And I said, is it possible that some myths are true? C.S. Lewis believed that Christianity was the true myth of which ancient mythologies were merely a shadow. This podcast explores the grand narrative of the Bible by taking into account the ancient supernatural worldview. Reality is stranger than fiction. Ironically, modern sensibilities have reduced Christianity to a bullet-point belief system of facts, concepts, and precepts thereby rendering the story too impotent to capture the imagination and heart of a high-tech generation. A story that's too small and too boring isn't worth living in. Subsequently, Western civilization pursues new myths, which upon investigation only serve to validate the archetypes of the original biblical narrative. And now let me ask you this question just to give you an idea of the kind of topics that I'm going to talk about on on this podcast what do the gods of mythology the nephilim of the bible the singularity artificial intelligence the fourth industrial revolution ancient aliens the search for extraterrestrial life globalization and the quest to restore the environment have to do with the Bible. What do they have to do with the Bible? I contend that they're all fascinatingly connected. And no matter how modern or postmodern or how far advanced we think we will become or are becoming, really the same patterns keep playing themselves out. It's like Ecclesiastes says, there's, there's really nothing new under the sun, I want to read from the introduction of a book by Luis Marcos called The Myth Made Fact. And he talks about C.S. Lewis and says, Although most readers of Lewis know that he spent many years as a confirmed atheist before becoming a Christian, far fewer are aware that Lewis's faith journey did not take him directly from the former to the latter. On the contrary, Lewis spent a full year as a theist before confessing Christ as Lord. As it turns out, one of the key factors that held Lewis the theist back from embracing Christianity was his great knowledge and love of mythology. However, from his study of Fraser's Golden Bough, Lewis learned that every ancient culture was aware of the pervasive power of human sin and guilt particularly as it manifested itself in terms of forbidden acts or taboos. In order to deal with such taboos, these cultures not only practiced rituals of sacrifice and ablution, but harbored a cherished myth about a god who came to earth, died, and returned to the abode of the gods. Fraser referred to this divine or semi-divine scape- scapegoat, see Leviticus 16.10, as a corn god. For his death and rebirth paralleled the seasonal cycle of the corn, or what Americans call wheat. As the grain is harvested and milled but then returns to life in the spring, so the corn god, henceforth I shall use Lewis's phrase, corn king, but without the hyphen, is killed and buried, only to be reborn and renewed. In Greece, the corn king goes by the name of Adonis, or Bacchus. In Egypt, he is called Osiris. Amongst the Babylonians and Persians, he bears the name of Tammuz and Mithra, or Mithras, as the Greeks called him. And in the northern regions regions of Scandinavia, he is called Baldr. Given the persistence of the corn king across all ancient cultures, Lewis, along with many of his fellow academics, concluded that Jesus of Nazareth was nothing more than the Hebrew version of the corn king. That is, until one fateful night, when Lewis took a long walk with his friend J.R.R. R. Tolkien, future author of The Lord of the Rings, and a committed Catholic. As they strolled along Addison's walk on the grounds of Magdalen College, Oxford, Tolkien suggested something to Lewis that revolutionized Lewis's understanding of myth and the Christian gospel. What if, Tolkien suggested, the reason Christ sounded so much like to the Corn King myth was that Christ was the myth that became fact? To put it another way, perhaps the reason that every ancient culture yearned for a god to come to earth, to die, and to rise again was because the Creator who made all the nations placed in every person a desire for that very thing. And if that is the case, then does it not make sense that when God enacted His salvation in the world, He would do it in a way that fulfilled the desire that He put in all of us? Indeed, if the life, death, and resurrection of Christ had been a wholly foreign thing, with no glimpses or foreshadowings in the myths and legends of the world's peoples, then it would seem that Christ was an alien God, one whose plan of salvation bore no resemblance to our most ancient and persistent longings. But if Christ is the fulfillment of all the legends of the corn king, if he is truly the myth that became fact, then the God of the Bible is not just the God of the Jews, but of all the nations. Christians believe that the event of Good Friday and Easter Sunday fulfilled the messianic special revelation produced prophecies recorded in the Old Testament. What Lewis learned from Tolkien is that Christ fulfilled as well all the deepest yearnings of the pagan peoples. It is no exaggeration to say that Tolkien's suggestion revolutionized Lewis's interactions with and understanding of the great myths of the pre-Christian Mediterranean world. The ubiquity of the Corn King myth across time and culture helped convince Lewis that Christianity, far from being a foreign idea imposed upon the, worldly, upon the world by a small Middle Eastern tribe, was the one true answer to a universal human need. Thirteen years after his climactic stroll down Addison's walk, Lewis published an essay, later anthologized In God in the Dock*, that articulates the lesson taught to him by Tolkien. Appropriately titled Myth Became Fact, the essay argues forcefully that when Christ died on the cross, He made real and historical, that which the pagan nations had long yearned for in their fantastical, non-historical myths. And yet, being Lewis, he was not satisfied merely to recap Tolkien's apologetical argument. In his essay, Lewis asks a larger question. Why do moderns, who say they no longer believe in the historical truth of the gospel message, continue to immerse themselves in and express themselves through the more mythic aspects of the faith. After all, he reminds us, such once vital belief systems as Epicureanism, Paganism, Gnosticism, and Deism have all passed away, at least from the imagination of Western thinkers. Yet Christianity, with its dying and rising God and its medieval rituals, continues to live on. As he works his way through this anomaly, this modern schizophrenia over the nature of history and religion, the scientific and the sacramental, Lewis presents his case for Christ as the myth made fact. But he does not end with it. Just as we must never forget that the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection of Christ are historical events in a way that the passion plays plays of Osiris and Adonis are not. We must also never forget that the gospel, though fully historical, retains its mythic power and force. God, Lewis writes in the final paragraph of Myth Became Fact, is more than a God, not less. Christ is more than Balder, not less. We must not be ashamed of the mythical radiance resting on our theology. We must not be nervous about parallels— And pagan Christs. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't. We must not, in false spirituality, withhold our imaginative welcome. If God chooses to be mythopic, and is not the sky itself a myth, shall we refuse to be mythopathic? For this is the marriage of heaven and earth. Perfect myth and perfect fact, claiming not only our love and our obedience, but also our wonder and delight, addressed to the savage, the child, and the poet in each one of us no less than to the moralist, the scholar, and the philosopher. Of all the great Christian writers since Newman, perhaps only Chesterton could have expressed with equal power and insight this central Christian paradox. Note that Lewis does not say that once we recognize that Christ is the myth-made fact, we can toss out myth and concern ourselves henceforward with fact. The mythic elements of Christianity are just as real and vital and central as the historical ones. Yes, Christ is more than Balder. He is the actual and historical Son of God. But He is not less than Balder. He takes to himself the beauty, wonder, and yearning that surround the ancient legends of the Norse corn king. Lewis goes one step further than the minister who uses a story from Greco-Roman mythology to illustrate a sermon point in his explication of a New Testament passage. For Lewis, the story does far more than illustrate. It foreshadows, paves the way for and participates in the fuller meaning revealed in the passage. Although Christ has fulfilled the truths latent in pre-Christian literature, He has not thereby rendered all such literature defunct. Homer, Sophocles, and Virgil can still be tapped as sources of real wisdom, not only because they reflect general revelation, but because their mythic elements help draw out and highlight the mythic elements of the Christian story. For though the Christian story is real and historical, it speaks to us with the same imaginative force as the Greek myths. We, of course, do not need the Greek myths to explain to us the gospel message or the core doctrines of the faith. However, by reading Greek and Roman mythology through Christian eyes, as Lewis himself did, we can shed light on those elements of the Bible and the faith that speaks more to our imagination than to our reason. The Enlightenment, privileging of fact over value and reason over imagination, has convinced large numbers of Christians, particularly my fellow Reformed and Evangelical Protestants, to focus heavily on systematic theology and logic-based apologetics, while shying away from those more aesthetic, imagination-based aspects of the faith that resist rigorous analysis. By doing so, they have cut themselves off from what I would boldly call the Ministry of Myth. Lewis's fictional and apologetical works empowered tens of thousands of American Christians who had accepted passively and often unconsciously the Enlightenment deal. The Christian faith will be respected as long as it confines itself to an emotional, privatized realm of personal piety to reclaim the rational historical public side of the christian world view tens of thousands of left-brain christians for whom christianity was primarily a set of theological propositions were also helped by lewis's work to reclaim the mythical imaginative side of the faith christians lewis taught us did not have to check their brains at the church door But they also did not have to surrender their deepest yearnings and longings for beauty, wonder, and magic. What Lewis helped us to do, indeed, what he gave us permission to do, was to listen for God's voice in a hundred different mediums. In the tradition of Origen, Boethius, Augustine, Aquinas, Dante, Erasmus, Milton, Newman, and Chesterton, Lewis taught us that wherever man has sought with his entire being to perceive the truths of his Creator, God is there. He does not always approve, but He is always present, and He is often powerfully and intimately present in myths. Now, there's a lot to chew on from that passage, but there are two things that I really want to highlight or draw out. One is the idea that in C.S. Lewis's early life, and and he represents so many from his time, and even even now, um, you know, even when he was a young schoolboy uh, learning mythology, he had a I think one particular teacher that was uh, very instrumental in his atheism, and basically was like, you see all these mythologies of of a dying and rising God that. You know, that is proof that Christianity is just another mythology. It's just a spinoff of, of um, it's just one among many, is basically basically what was being said. And that's what, obviously, C.S. Lewis carried for a long time. Um, but it turns out that, uh, y- you know, when you, you're in a court of law or you're trying to prove something, normally you want more than one testimony. So if you can get two or three affidavits, you know, you can get two or three witnesses. Well, that's proof. It's not the opposite. And so, you know, when you look at ancient cultures and each and every one of them had pantheons and had so many different ways that there were parallels to the biblical story, um, including foreshadowings of a a coming God who would die and rise again— uh, those are those are ways that God has seeded truth, and that's what even early church fathers, many of them, believed. Um, that that it's it's called common grace and that god would seed truth even in pagan religions not to say that the the pagan religions were true but to say that because of god's love for humanity he was always seeding truth and it's also i think probably part of the design of the human heart a longing for salvation you know just as as he mentioned there always was a uh, a sense of need for atonement and for sacrifice, and these different elements in, in the pagan myths that testified to a reality. So, so that just kind of leads to the second thing, which, like I was saying, it seeds the way so that, like Lewis was saying, it makes sense. It wouldn't—if if the gospel ca- came in a world and there was a message that we need— Absolution from sin—you know—we need propitiation. Uh, we, need, uh, we need a we need a savior, and and we lived in a world where there is no sense of guilt and no sense of of need to be reconciled with God or the gods. Well, it wouldn't have made any sense. It would have been absolutely foreign. And so you see what happens. And I'll explore it a little bit in another podcast. How. Coming all the way up to the Greco-Roman world, more and more these mythologies led, very led to uh, the gospel. Not that they caused the gospel, but they they led you know Romans and people you know that were Gentiles to the door of the church, so that when the gospel came it just exploded all throughout the Greco-Roman world. I mean, it took a little bit of time, but then it exploded because they had been prepared for it, not just through the teaching of the Torah, but even through their own pagan mythologies through the Aenid and through other writings as well. So there are so many things that I, I do want to explore in this podcast. And and part of it is is even the understanding that the ancient world, obviously, like I was saying, believe, you know, believed they had a, what we would call polytheism and pantheons and all of these gods. Uh, but the the Bible, especially the 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 Old Testament, is has so many passages that are like a polemic that will take on, Um, whether it's concepts of the Baal cycle or different concepts that that related to maybe the ancient Babylonian world and would not invalidate them, but turn it on its head so that it it became a polemic against, like for instance, the Babylonian narrative about uh, fallen beings who would come down They were called the Upkalu, and they were, which would be gods that came down to the earth and took wives for themselves, and uh, through procreation created what we would understand as demigods. Which many of the the mythological, you know, figures and characters like Perseus or Hercules, they're they're demigods, right? They're the offspring of a human and and a divine being, and so uh Genesis 6 addresses this now the Babylonians weren't the only ones that had this belief as a matter of fact obviously you can look whether it's Norse uh, mythology or whether it's uh, the the not just the Greco-Roman mythology but also Egyptian there there are the ideas this idea of of uh, procreation with humanity so Genesis 6 has a passage about that about that what's called the Watchers uh are spiritual beings that that were at one time good and they came down and decided to take women for themselves as their wives and through procreation uh were were born the offspring the Nephilim, which basically are demigods, right? They're uh they're what became the giants and became the warriors of old, the of legend. And and the Bible doesn't just isn't doesn't just stop there in Genesis six. That story of the Nephilim picks up over and over, through all you know, all the way up to think about David and Goliath. He faces Goliath, who is a descendant of the Nephilim, and uh, and when Joshua goes into the Promised Land with Caleb and with the Israelites, they face what giants. It wasn't just a metaphor. There really were descendants from this Genesis six moment. Now that raises all kinds of questions, and of course, I don't think that we can know the exact answers, but. You know Genesis six, Genesis one, Genesis two, Genesis three. There, I believe they're all true, but they're Jewish meditation literature and designed um, not to give us all of the answers, but to cause us to meditate and to believe, and also to, uh, I believe, also to evoke that spiritual imagination within our hearts, so that you can meditate for a lifetime on on just on Genesis one through three, um, and. And like I said, it doesn't give us all the answers, not even a fraction of the answers. So it's not that these elements of the story, like Genesis 6, are exhaustive, but it does give credence to the fact that that the ancient biblical writers were interacting with the world around them in a very relevant way, and that the idea of fallen beings— the other nations called them gods, and actually the Bible calls them Elohim, which is a, you know, for, for us, you know, we panic because, oh my gosh, you know, we're, we're monotheists. There are no other gods, which basically is, is our spiritual beings, and there are Elohim that fell, as in they rebelled against God. And I'll talk about that another point. No, I don't believe in polytheism. Like I said, um, it's it's just basically spiritual beings. It it's not um, it's not saying that they're equal with God. Yahweh is Yahweh is an Elohim as well, but there are no Elohim that are like Yahweh. So Yahweh is uncreated. And not only that, he's unrivaled. So in polytheism, you know, there can be a coup and, and somebody else can take power. So whoever's the ruling God over the pantheon can be toppled and somebody else can take that position of prominence. Not so with God's, with, you know, the, the beings that God surrounds himself with. And we know that there are those that fell, obviously that, that rebelled. And so you know, that plays into the understanding of the Nephilim and, uh, or, and, or the understanding of like, for instance, the Epic of Gilgamesh is the, the, the most ancient piece of writing that we have. I think it's Sumerian and, and, uh, Gilgamesh, there are many elements obviously talks about a flood. He meets a character who, you know, went through the flood, who knows, maybe it was one of Noah's sons. And, um, and so they believed in the flood. As a matter of fact, all ancient cultures believed in the flood. Is that is that reason for us to believe, oh, well then it's mythology, so we don't believe in the flood? Or maybe maybe they knew something we don't. Maybe it's a testimony. Why did every culture all around the all the around the world that we know of have a flood story? But I digress. So there's the, you know, the idea of of Gilgamesh and Gilgamesh in many ways parallels Nimrod of the Bible, and some believe that he was Nimrod, um, the the kings of of Babylon that Gilgamesh claimed descent from. So he, Gilgamesh was a a uh, demigod, you know, the offspring of a god and of of a human being. But it's interesting because the kings, when when uh, and I'm not sure if it's in the same tablets uh, as the Epic of Gilgamesh, but there's similar dating, I think. The kings of, of Babylon are listed, and they go back before the flood. And those kings before the flood all have very long lifespans, a lot like the Bible, right? But then after the flood, their lifespans become uh, much more normal. So... There are all these interesting parallels, meaning that probably these ancient people were not as uh, dumb and gullible and superstitious as we might believe. They they probably actually really did have interaction to some extent with fallen beings that they considered to be gods, and who and who would have had a very if they really are fallen beings, they would have had a a vested interest in telling the story with a twist. So when you read the story of the of the flood from the Babylonian perspective, it's a very different reason why God flooded the earth. And so you're getting the story from the Babylonian perspective or the Egyptian perspective or whatever perspective it might be, but you can bet that it is definitely an anti-Yahweh, message but it's a twisting or a perversion or a counterfeit of the truth even the fact that pantheons were set up that the Ugar- Ugaritic culture they had a pantheon with Baal and with El as their as their top god and um and they had 70 they they had 70 uh, in the pantheon. Well, that's the, the same amount of elders that God brings up on, on Mount Sinai, 70. That's the same amount of um, of disciples that Jesus sends out to preach the gospel is 70. Uh, and I don't have time to go into the significance of all that. But the point is that if these are really fallen beings who at one time really dwelt in the presence of Yahweh, then in, and what they wanted is is, is really to have it their way. So in many ways, it sound, seems like they didn't really give up their understanding of hierarchy and structure and of having a council. Like God surrounds himself in so many passages, whether it's Daniel 7 or Revelation, uh, we can see, or 1 Kings, I think it's 21. You can see Isaiah 6, he has Zechariah 3. I mean, it goes on and on where he has Myriads and myriads of beings around him, and they even answer to him, like in Job one or in Zechariah chapter one. They patrol the earth, and then they answer to the Lord, or they—they they actually, uh, Daniel four talks about the watchers actually are are the ones that came up with the decree for Nebuchadnezzar's punishment, which I'm sure was under the auspices of Yahweh. But but it's clear that it would—they—they they actually had a part in making that decision. Not that God needs them. He's not um, in need. He's not so powerless. But it actually, you know, a a king's hall, a huge king's hall, if you walk into it, like I'm thinking of in Lord of the Rings, uh, Minas Tirith, when Gandalf, and I think it's Pippin, they walk into, into the hall where Denethor is. It's this grand hall, but it's absolutely empty with a king sitting on it. What if you walk into the same hall and the king is surrounded by all of these powerful people and, and a powerful army and, and the hall is full? Well, that's what, you know, it actually speaks of the glory of the king. And God surrounds himself with a heavenly host or army. That's really what, what that word means. And, and that is used over and over in the Old Testament the god of armies is, i think used uh, over 400 times or something like that so we see that there's this um similar playing out in the, the mythologies right we see these uh these divine councils where there's a gen- generally a a being who's the most powerful and then the others are around and yet it's interesting because they also tend to fight with one another. They tend to be immoral. Some of them act like they're really on behalf of, of humanity. It's kind of what you would expect if there really were fallen beings who were vying with one another for power over the earth, who will twist things and, and will, will also fight against one another. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it might just be that these mythologies are actually telling us more. And what relevance does that have anyway? You know, Other than what's interesting is that today, even as the West is, um, has, has successfully, in many ways, divested itself of the, the fabric of Western civilization and Judeo-Christian thought and all that, and as we move forward into this new high-tech world, where there there is this dream of of merging with technology, and and one day you know we can actually like the singularity, Ray Kurzweil, and and uh, actually there are many you know even even uh, Klaus Schwab, the 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 leader of the World Economic Forum, has a very similar idea that at one point we'll merge with technology, you know that that our humanity could be rescued by merging with technology, and in a sense we'll gain immortality, and so. You know, we look back and we mock these ancient mythologies where there are quests for immortality for the, the for the fountain of life. and yet we still struggle with death and we still are making up new mythologies that now, oh no, but it's just science. it's it's science and and technology, and we're going to reach a point where we could possibly potentially be our own gods, right? We could potentially wait a minute, isn't that isn't that what the temptation in the garden was? was to become our own God. And, and that's what the dream is. You can listen to Jason Silva. He's kind of the prophet of of all this singularity stuff. But these are, or whether it's Sergi Brin or, I mean, a lot of these guys out there believe this stuff, not to say that I believe that it'll really happen, but belief is a powerful thing. And so it's interesting that now, as high tech as we are, and as in many ways atheistic um especially a lot of these guys that really push this this uh kind of high tech revolution of a fourth industrial revolution singularity merging with merging with technology and and literally like you'll hear Jason Silva talk about we will become gods um but they but it's a completely materialistic view right there there is it's like a complete divesting of of ancient mythology or also of the christian Uh, truth and reality and yet what's crazy is that we keep we can't escape these archetypes right we keep playing the same archetypes out and we we keep pursuing the same things even the idea it's kind of crazy i think it's more you know far-fetched but one of the ideas with with uh technology nanotechnology and all these different things is is not only will eventually humans be able to uh Attain immortal life, but that we would even be able to impregnate the earth with consciousness and even begin to restore it, so that um, so that eventually even it becomes merged with technology. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Because that's what you know. Romans eight talks about the earth groaning and longing for the revelation of the sons of God because it's held under bondage. That there's this some kind of uh, hindrance because of the fall and and then we know of course in revelation 21 and 22 that the new heavens and the new earth will come that god will not only resurrect human bodies um which it sounds like today's technology wants that resurrected body right but he will also resurrect the heavens and the earth that there will be a new heavens and a new earth um it seems that there's this a a, a just a retelling of of the same stories you know we're fascinated with um, superheroes like I love the Avengers what is the gr- the highest grossing movie of all time is the Avengers endgame and I want to say that of the top 10 grossing films at least four of them maybe it's only three are Avengers movies and I know number 11 is one as well so and Star Wars is like number three so it, we love these mythologies. Re- reason why I bring that up is that basically the superheroes of the Avengers are are like high tech gods. They, you know, there's a book I have called "Our Gods Wear Spandex." <laughs> basically, that's what they're coming from. Comic books and the comic books really came from mythological figures. And but today there's that idea where you know maybe science fiction is 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 going to come true. Maybe what appears to be magic in, you know, the ancient world actually is science. And so there are these, you know, these, these hopes and these desires and dreams, there's like a longing, even as it connects to UFOs and, you know, extraterrestrial life, um, which you know, the general population accepts the idea that there's life out there. And interestingly enough, most people believe, of course, that they would be super advanced and that they would be like really good, that they would be almost like gods, right? That they would come and, and have all of this knowledge, which is what happened on Mount Hermon, right? In, in Genesis 6 is that these these fallen being these gods, basically Elohim, the watchers, they came down. And I don't mean gods like Yahweh, but I mean the the technical Hebrew term is Elohim, which means it's basically a spiritual being, um, came down and they, you know, like we said, procreated. But they also gave knowledge to humanity, forbidden knowledge, um, which goes back to that tree of life and that longing for knowledge that's forbidden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Uh, So... <laughs> of course, I'm just throwing out lots of lots of different ideas, but I do intend to really dig into some of them because I'm fascinated with the singularity. I'm fascinated with the uh, the ideas of of mythology or the ideas of UFOs and extraterrestrials and how that relates to uh the the sort of the new mythology, the new embracing of of uh, the new gods. You know whether you know, it's like there's a belief system developing that we're going to become the gods or also that we're going to finally meet and, and then maybe even co-mingle with these, these gods. Like, which one will happen first? I don't know. How does that play into eschatology and the belief of in things? Because really to understand the end, you know, people love to study eschatology and the end times and the end times and the end times and get, you know, and I think it's a good thing to study I don't think it should be the primary thing. It has to be balanced. But in order to understand the end things, we have to understand the beginning things. So you've got to go back. You've got to understand Genesis and the beginning and the ancient world. And interestingly enough, we have not escaped it. As a matter of fact, we are fast moving towards a high-tech sort of reincarnation of the pagan world. And... That is fascinating, because in a way, we're on a high-speed bullet train back to Genesis, back to the days of Noah, in some very interesting ways. So I look forward to... um talking about and exploring these ideas. I initially was going to also do Bible teaching on this podcast, but I decided to actually create a separate podcast where it'll be focused on the word. And, um, and then I can just go through those things and let this be more theory and, you know, philosophical ideas. So thanks for joining me. I look forward to, uh, look forward to next time. パンパンパンパンパンパンパンパン。<音楽><音楽>